Well, normally, as most of you know, we're in the book of Colossians, but uh, this morning I wanted to um, direct your attention to Revelation chapter 1 in your Bible, the very last book of the Bible. There should be an outline in your bulletin. If you didn't get one, feel free to get up and grab one now. Uh, Or there are printed messages also of the manuscripts available each week, and that's going all the way back to 1992. Um, Some people have asked me from time to time why I don't preach on Revelation, and my honest answer is because I don't understand most of it. Uh, And I'm not going to preach on something I'm not clear on, but this part is pretty clear, I think. I hope you'll agree with me by the time we're done. And so I want us to look at verse chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. I am reading from the New American Standard Bible. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold... I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you've seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Someday soon, you will see the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Either you will see him when he comes in power and glory, which could be soon. Every eye will see him. Or you will see him the instant you die. And if he doesn't come first, it's pretty certain that all of us will die. And we will see the Lord. Do you ever wonder what it will be like to see him? 
We often hear about people seeing Jesus through dreams and visions. That seems to be happening a lot in the uh, Islamic world. And I take it that when people come to genuine saving faith through that, it's legitimate. Sometimes I confess it sounds a little weird. The weirdest one I heard about was a guy that dreamed he saw Jesus, and then he saw the Jesus film, and he went, that's who I saw in my dream. And I thought, well, that isn't Jesus. That's an actor playing Jesus, but the Lord seemed to use that, and so those seemed to be legitimate. But then we hear all these claims of Christians who claim to have died and gone to heaven and come back, and they tell us about it, and and uh, they, some people say they see Jesus all the time in visions, and I confess I am skeptical of most of those. I've told you before about Pastor John MacArthur, whose friend, another pastor, told John that he sees Jesus every morning while he's shaving. And John's incredulous reply was, and you keep shaving? (laughs) I think he's right, because the Bible doesn't leave us to wonder what will it be like when we see the risen Lord Jesus. The Apostle John is on the island of Patmos, about 40 miles off the coast of modern-day Turkey, Uh, He's exiled there because of his witness about the risen Savior. On the Lord's Day, which was most likely a Sunday, um, John says he was in the Spirit. And one commentator says that implies being transported into the world of prophetic visions by the Spirit. In this unusual state, he hears a loud trumpet. It's a voice, but it sounds like a loud trumpet telling him, to write down what he saw and uh, to send it to these seven churches in Asia Minor, again, modern-day Turkey. Those seven churches probably are representative of the church as a whole. And so John wrote this vision, including the entire book of Revelation, to uh, these persecuted churches, both to give them comfort and also correction. John, turning to see who was speaking with him, sees the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Now, John, as you may remember, at the Last Supper was the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was so close physically there to Jesus as well as relationally that he laid his head on Jesus' chest. They, in that day, would recline as they ate, so He would lean back to whisper something in Jesus' ear. He was that close, but yet on this occasion, he sees the risen Jesus and he falls at his feet as a dead man. He was terrified, and I believe the only other experience close to this that John had 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 been when he and Peter and James were there on the Mount of Transfiguration and they saw Jesus in his glory And it says there in that um, story that they were, on that occasion, terrified. But in our text, John gives us a description so that we know what it is like to encounter the risen Jesus. And namely, seeing the risen Lord Jesus Christ, I think, will first be terrifying and convicting, but then quickly comforting if we have believed in him. Now, maybe you're thinking, what? No hugs? Uh, I don't think so. 
Not at first. I don't see any text in the Bible that says when you see the risen Lord, he's going to give you a big bear hug. I think when you see the risen Lord, your first response is going to be terror. Terror because of who he is and partly because of who we are. Um, And John's reaction on this occasion was not unique. When you look through the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, when people had an encounter with the pre-incarnate Christ, he appeared to some people beforehand, often the response, and even in the book of Daniel, it wasn't Christ, it was just an angel, the response was one of terror and the fear, I'm going to die. I am going to die because my eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. So when we see the risen Lord, I'm going to argue, first of all, we're going to be terrified and convicted. It's going to be frightening because we will see him in his blazing glory and his holiness. He will be so different than we are that it's just going to be, uh, we'll be speechless. And then we will realize in the light of his glory who we are in our sinfulness. And the result is going to be being terrified and convicted, first of all, because of who Jesus is. And John's vision here reveals seven characteristics of who this risen Lord is. First of all, he is the rightful high priest of his people. And that is probably represented by the robe and the golden sash across his chest. Six of the seven uses of the word robe that is used here in the Old Testament refer to the attire of the high priest. And so most commentators believe that's what is uh, represented here. Um, The high priest's garments were distinctive. Not everybody, you know, went out to the local department store and bought a high priest's robe so they could look like him. Uh, He was set apart from the people by his garments. And if you encountered the high priest in his garments, you were suddenly made aware he is holy and I am not. He can go into the holy of holies and I cannot. And I need him to go in there because I need atonement for my sins. And even so, Jesus, our high priest, reminds us we cannot approach the holy God in the rags of our own good works. They simply will not cut it. We need a high priest, and Jesus is that high priest who has entered the very holy of holies of God on our behalf to make atonement for our sins. The second picture we get here of Jesus is that he is the eternal holy one, the ancient of days. It says that Jesus' head and hair were like white wool, like snow, And much of the revelation, by the way, comes right out of the Old Testament. And this comes from Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9, where Daniel says, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was, here's what we have in Revelation, like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. Now, in Daniel 7, 9, it's talking about the Lord God Almighty. 
In Revelation 1, John applies that to the Lord Jesus, showing clearly that John believed that Jesus is the Lord God. He shares his attributes. The white hair speaks of his wisdom and the respect due to him as the omniscient sovereign of the universe. White also, always in the Bible, symbolizes holiness. And Jesus is just as eternal as the Father, the Ancient of Days, a reference to his eternality. He shares his perfect holiness, which again is terrifying and convicting as we realize that we are mere creatures, that we are subject to death because of our sins. The third picture here of Jesus is that he is the one from whom nothing is hidden. John says Jesus' eyes were like a flame of fire. Um, the same description occurs again in Revelation 2.18. And uh, in the context there, it emphasizes in Revelation 2.23 that Jesus searches the minds, the hearts and the minds, or the minds and the hearts. He knows all of the deeds that we do. Um, in the book of Hebrews, the author says that the word of God is able to judge the very thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And then in Hebrews 4.13, the next verse, the author says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. It's kind of a terrifying thought. I mean, with all the social media today, people are coming out saying, wait a minute, I didn't want that to go on Facebook. Now the whole world knows about what I did. Uh, well, God knows everything you do, and not only everything you do, everything you think, and not only everything you think, but even your motives for why you did it. That's kind of terrifying. The fourth thing about Jesus is that he is the holy judge of all. In verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace. In the Old Testament, bronze is uniformly a symbol for judgment. And the fact that Jesus' feet were glowing as if they had been in a furnace means purity because metal is refined in the furnace. And it means that he's going to judge all by the standard of his absolute purity Again, another cause for terror and conviction. Fifthly, Jesus is the Lord of majesty and of power. Verse 15, his voice was like the sound of many waters. Um, that description also occurs in Revelation 14 and in Revelation 19. But it comes out of Ezekiel. A couple of places, but just one of the references. Ezekiel 43.2, the prophet uh, relates, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east, and his voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. Perhaps you've been down at the beach sometime when uh, there's been a storm, and those breakers just break with power, and you can't even hear one another standing next to each other because of the noise of the surf, or same thing if you've been near a powerful waterfall and the roar of that water. It inspires you with the awe of the power of God. 
that this is just a waterfall, and God is much greater than all of that. And it means, since it's his voice, that when he speaks, we dare not ignore his word, or we risk being swept away like the powerful waves on the shore would do to us if we got too close. The sixth picture of Jesus tells us that he is the Lord who judges all by his word. Verse 16, out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. There are a couple of Greek words for sword. One's for a short dagger. This one is the word for a long sword that the soldiers would use in battle in swinging it. Um, In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12 and verse 16 in the letter to the church of Pergamum, uh, the Lord threatens them that he may use this sword from his mouth against them if they do not repent. And then when you get to chapter 19 of Revelation, the sword from his mouth, it says, will strike down the nations uh, when he returns and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And God's word, it means, is the standard by which he judges both his church, the church in Pergamum, and the entire world when he comes again. And that means we can't plead ignorance. To the extent we are ignorant of the law, it doesn't matter. If we break the law, we're guilty of it. And God's word is the standard that we will be judged by. And so we need to be ready for when he comes. And then the final picture of Jesus is that he is the sovereign Lord. He is the sovereign, glorious Lord of heaven and earth. In verse 16, it says that in his right hand, he held seven stars. And then it adds at the end of the verse, his face was shining like the sun in its strength. Now, we would be puzzling, what does that mean? Except verse 20 explains it to us. It says that the seven stars are the seven angels of the churches. I'll comment more on that in a moment. And his right hand means it is the place both of power and of safety. And so the main idea is Jesus is the sovereign over his churches. And the shining brilliance of his face compared to that of the shining sun conveys his glory. Just as we can not look at the sun in its brilliance without damaging our eyesight, um, even so... We can't look on the glory of the the risen Lord without some protection, the protection of his blood which he shed for us and not be consumed. And so the first point here is we all will be terrified and will be convicted when we see the glorious risen Lord because of who he is. But also, I believe we'll be terrified and convicted because of who we are, You know, none of us, I hope, would uh, dare to boast that we are the most righteous person on earth. But there was a man who didn't boast that of himself. But get this, God said, Job is the most righteous man on earth. That's a pretty good commendation. And yet when Job got a glimpse of the Holy One of God in Job 42, it says, he, he says, I repent and I fall down in dust and ashes. 
he, it, it just undid him to get a vision of God because he knew his own sin. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, the Apostle Paul indicts us all. He says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. And in case we miss the point, he repeats, there is none who does good. There is not even one. And so if you think you're going to stand before God someday and plead your good works, may I please uh, take that thought away from your mind. To stand before the holy God and plead your good works would be like a murderer going before the judge and saying, you know, but judge, I, I help out over at a local charity. Well, that's beside the point. The point is, did you commit that deed? And from childhood on, all of us have piled up sin after sin uh, against the Lord. If anybody sought to be righteous by their deeds, it was the Jews. I mean, these guys would put us all to shame. They were fastidious in tithing their spices, their table spices, in doing good deeds, in keeping the law, the rituals. And yet in Romans 3, just beyond where I just read, down in verses 19 and 20, Paul goes on and he shows that even the Jews would be condemned by God's law. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and that all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, you read God's perfect law and you go, whoa, I'm in trouble. I have fallen short. So when you see the Lord, uh, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and you will see him soon, it's going to be terrifying and convicting unless, here's the good news, okay. When we see the risen Lord, we will be comforted if we have believed in him. We'll be comforted. John falls at Jesus' feet as a dead man, and then he reports, verse 17, that Jesus, he says, placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Now that is incredibly good news, not just for John, but for all who have believed in the Lord Jesus. And from John's vision of Jesus, as well as Jesus' comforting words here, there are four truths that deliver us from the fear of judgment and that give us comfort and hope if our trust is in Christ. The first one is obviously from this text, the Lord Jesus is God in human flesh. In verses 13 and 14, John reports seeing one like a son of man. Where does he get this? It comes again out of Daniel chapter 7 that we read earlier. This time in verses 13 and 14 where Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. That's where John gets this. One like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days 
and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Jesus specifically took that prophecy and related it to himself at his trial. As you may know, at most of his trial, Jesus kept silent like a lamb before its shearers. But on one occasion, he could not keep silent because the priest, the high priest, said to Jesus, I adjure you to tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus answered this, Matthew twenty six sixty four, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, note, you will see the Son of Man. <laughs> so the high priest is going to see the Son of Man, as every person will. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, that is, of God Almighty, and coming on the clouds of heaven. That phrase, Son of Man, was one of Jesus' favorite designations of himself when he was on earth. It has overtones, due to Daniel 7, both of deity and of humanity. And the entire Gospel of John, written by the same author that wrote the Revelation, makes the point that Jesus is none other than God in human flesh. He begins the gospel with saying that the word, Jesus, is eternal, that he created all things. And then we get down to verse 14, and he adds, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In John chapter 5 and verse 27, Jesus claims that the Father gave to him, the Son, he says, authority to execute judgment. Here's why. Because he is the Son of Man. Because he is the Son of Man. And you get to the climax of John's gospel, and you have Thomas, who has doubted the resurrection, sees the risen Christ. He falls before him, Jesus tells Thomas what he has been saying in Jesus' absence. He knows all. And Thomas proclaims, my Lord and my God. And Jesus did not disown that confession. Rather, he affirms it. And so that is the point. Now, the deity of Jesus then is emphasized here in John's vision. It's emphasized again down in verse 17 where Jesus says, I am the first. And the last, if you back up to verse 8 of Revelation chapter 1, the Lord God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That means the same thing as the first and the last, because Alpha is the A of the Greek alphabet. Omega is like the Z. It's the last letter of the Greek alphabet. And then, and if you ever have Jehovah's Witnesses friends or Mormon friends come knocking on your door, and they deny the deity of Jesus, you can take them to these verses because at the end of Revelation, chapter 22 and verse 13, here's what Jesus claims. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, or the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And that is a direct claim 
to Jesus' deity. Either he is lying, he's mistaken, or he is who he claimed to be. And I think the Bible certainly upholds the last option. Um, But the point is, because Jesus is God, we can trust him to do what he has promised to do, to come again for us, to take us to be with him in heaven, where we will be uh, forever with the Lord. And because Jesus is man, because of his humanity, we have comfort because we know that he's a sympathetic high priest made as we are. He understands our weaknesses. A second reason we find comfort in John's vision is that the Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins. In verse 18, Jesus tells John, I was dead. And each of the four Gospels gives extended treatment to the fact that Jesus actually died on the cross and that he died for our sins. Uh, Again, backing up to verse 5 of chapter 1 in Revelation, John says that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead and that he loves us and he released us from our sins by his blood. Before Adam and Eve sinned, God warned them and said, the day you sin, you're going to die. And as the holy sovereign of the universe, God can give the penalty for our rebellion. He said that penalty is death. And it not only includes physical death, but as Revelation chapter 20 shows, it includes something far more horrific. The second death, which Revelation 20 says will be to be eternally separated from God in the lake of fire. Because God is not only holy and just, but also because he's loving, though, God instituted a system. He did it in the garden where he slaughtered an animal, probably a lamb, and clothed Adam and Eve as a picture of the entire Jewish sacrificial system. And that whole system told people, yes, you have sinned, but God has ordained a means by which an acceptable substitute can bear your penalty. And all of those Old Testament sacrifices come to a head and are culminated in the person of Jesus Christ. He is, as John the Baptist proclaimed, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world through his death. And so every sinner who trusts in Jesus' shed blood can know God has forgiven all of his sins. I love Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, where Paul draws the distinction between trying to get to heaven by your good works and getting to heaven by trusting Jesus. Here's what he says. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but it's what is due. You don't go to your boss and say, thank you, thank you for my paycheck. I didn't deserve it. You say, rather, I earned it. Okay, and no one will get into heaven saying, I earned it. Paul goes on. But to the one who does not work, here's the key, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. That's us. His faith is credited as righteousness. But John's vision shows us Jesus not only is the eternal God in human flesh, who died for our sins, but what we celebrate today, the Lord Jesus Christ is risen. He is alive forevermore, 
and he is the sovereign over death and Hades. Verse 18, Jesus says, I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. It's amazing in the Gospels, but in spite of Jesus' repeated prophecies to the disciples that he would die and be raised again, they didn't get it. It just didn't fit their conception of a Messiah that he would die on the cross. But when they saw the risen Lord over 40 days on many occasions, many different witnesses, these men who at first were doubtful and fearful were all to a man transformed into bold witnesses. And we have solid evidence that Jesus arose not just as a phantom, but bodily. I don't know if you get the Daily Sun, but yesterday there was a horrible thing on the editorial page basically saying, well, we can't prove that Jesus was raised from the dead, but it's sort of the tradition of the church, and so we can all believe it. Happy Easter. And I wrote a letter to the editor, which thankfully is in today's paper, saying that is absurd. It is absurd. I looked up the guy that wrote it. He's a Catholic writer, and he obviously does not believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Um, which Scripture proclaims. So you can read my letter today, if you would. But you have in the Apostle Paul a man who was a terrorist. He was a persecutor of the church. And he saw the risen Christ, and because of it, he suffered greatly and eventually suffered martyrdom because of it. And he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. So Paul rested the entire Christian faith on that one pillar. Jesus is raised bodily. He goes on to be so bold as to say, if he's not raised, go be a hedonist. Eat, drink, and and be merry. Tomorrow you die. So Jesus is risen. He also claims to hold the keys of death and Hades. And that means he controls who dies and he controls when you die. That's his prerogative as the sovereign. But again, if your trust is in him, that's a great comfort. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 1.21, For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And it's gained because when the minute we die to be absent from the body, we will be at home with the Lord forever and will be free from all sorrow and suffering. And so the resurrection of Jesus is a great comfort for all who believe. But one final thing, the risen Lord Jesus comforts us, not so that we'll be comfortable and cozy, but so that we will be his witnesses even if it results in persecution. And we see that in our text by this vision that John has of these seven golden lampstands. In verse 16, he adds that the risen Lord had in his right hand seven stars, and then verse 20 explains these symbols. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, uh, the seven stars 
and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, even though it's explained, there's a lot of controversy over who or what are the angels. Um, And it's hard to decide. There are good arguments on both sides. Some would argue that they are human messengers. The word angelos in Greek can mean messenger. Either messengers that had come to John and he's sending them back to the churches or pastors over the churches. Some would hold that. Or they're literal angels. And I'm going to side with that view, although I recognize good arguments for the other because that same word in Greek is used 60 times in Revelation, and every other time it refers to literal angels. So I think somehow it's picturing angels over the churches. The churches, though, are pictured as lampstands, and the Lord is standing in their midst. And that shows us that we are to be witnesses to the world of the light of the world, who is Jesus. He is now in heaven, but he left us on earth to be light unto the nations as we proclaim to the world the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection on behalf of all who will believe in him. But the book of Revelation is very honest. Bearing witness of that good news is often costly. John here is in exile on this island, probably even though he's close to 90 or in his 90s, he was in hard labor in a prison camp. Um, Later, in the letters to the seven churches, it shows that some will suffer even unto death because of their testimony of Jesus. And down throughout history, there have been a string of martyrs, more in the 20th century than in all the other centuries before. And as we know, thanks to uh, ISIS and other Groups like that, there are many today uh, suffering not just reproach and the loss of their property, but the loss of life because they have testified to the truth of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Also, we have comfort here because we know that Jesus is the Lord of history. He tells John in verse 19 to write down the things that are going to take place after And it's clear from the rest of Revelation, Jesus knows the script all the way to the end because he wrote it. He knows in chapter 6, this is amazing, the martyrs cry out before the throne, How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? And the Lord basically says, uh, Give them a white robe and tell them to wait. The full number of martyrs is not yet complete. So the Lord knows how many. And when it's complete, judgment will come, but uh, he is the Lord of history. So, seeing the risen Lord then will be both terrifying and convicting, but it will also be comforting for all who have believed in him. I have to end, though, by saying that the book of Revelation also reveals some horrible news for those who refuse to repent and believe, namely, that those who refuse to repent and believe will be terrified, but they won't be comforted when they see the risen Lord, when he comes to judge the living and the dead. Um, It's ironic, is it not? He is a comfort to believers, but he's a terror to the unrepentant. 
And in chapter 6 of Revelation, it says they're going to cry out to the rocks and to the hills to fall on them and to protect them from the wrath of the Lamb. An exquisite, ironic phrase, is it not? I've never seen a wrathful Lamb. But some will see the wrathful Lamb of God. And the Bible is very clear that dying physically is not the end. That's called the first death. But you get to the end of the book in Revelation 20, and there's something called the second death. And it says that all whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life are thrown into the lake of fire. And Jesus himself often referred to it as a place of outer darkness, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And the bottom line is, you don't want to go there. If Jesus is the truth, he warned us, you don't want to go there. And here's the good news. You don't have to go there. You don't have to go there. You can leave this morning with the assurance that Jesus, who died for sinners, who's risen again, is your Savior. Is your Savior. And God offers eternal life to every sinner, not to those who work for it, And hope, hope, hope that they get in. No, no, no. It's a free gift to every person who will receive it. A very familiar verse. Maybe you know it and haven't thought carefully about it. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That means he gave him on the cross. That whoever believes in him shall not perish That's referring to the second death. Shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's a free gift. You can have it today, even now. Why risk facing God's judgment when today you can believe in Jesus and receive eternal life as a free gift? Doesn't make sense. The Apostle Paul spoke on Mars on Mars Hill there in Athens to the Athenian philosophers. And here was his message summed up in Acts 17, 30 and 31. Therefore, he said, having overlooked times of ignorance, God is now declaring that all people everywhere should repent. Here's why. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now at that, the book of Acts says some of the philosophers scoffed, but some believed. And I suppose that's your option today. You can scoff and go out, and you will face the judgment of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Or you can believe. And you will find comfort when he comes. Comfort even now. Uh, when he, but comfort when he comes because you don't have to fear judgment. But I think John's revelation shows very clearly. You will see the risen Lord Jesus Christ someday soon. He could come back anytime. Or frankly, you could die anytime, even if you're young. Don't risk facing judgment. Embrace 
the mercy, the forgiveness of, of sins that he offers you. And when you see him, he will be the source of eternal comfort to you, not of eternal terror. Let's pray. Just as we bow before the Lord in your heart, you can say, Lord God, I know I have sinned against you. Thank you for giving your son Jesus on the cross that I might have eternal life as a free gift. And I welcome him into my heart and life right now. And again, it's not the words, it's the attitude of your heart. If you trust in the crucified and risen Jesus, God promises eternal life to all who believe in him. Dear Lord, I pray you would open the eyes and hearts of everyone here, that no one would go out under threat of your judgment, which is righteous and holy, but that all would go out with the comfort of knowing that the risen Jesus has saved me from my sins. And I ask in his name, amen. We're going to conclude by taking...